This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The podcast is also sponsored by my good friend Tiger at It's Tiger Music on Instagram at itztiger.music. You can find all his work on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. He does all the music and tracks for the Block Hash podcast. Go check him out. Also, don't forget to check out Blockhash Plus on Patreon. This is something that's new, where you can learn more about trading, technical analysis, and charting, all for the price of two cups of coffee a month. That's pretty damn cheap. Sign up at patreon.com slash Blockhash. And last but definitely not least, Blockhash is offering consulting for all your blockchain needs. Buying, exchanging, selling, safe storage, tokenization, NFT creation, point of sale, you name it. We can help you. Go to blockhashpodcast.com slash consulting and let's talk. What's up, guys? It is Friday, February 12th, episode 108. This week on the podcast, I have Seamus Donahue, the VP of Sales and Business Development for Mataco. They are the leading provider of security critical infrastructure that allows financial institutions to enter the digital asset ecosystem in space. They are trusted by top banks, exchanges, and many other financial institutions. So what are you waiting for? Pour that Friday beer, kick back, relax, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about Seamus himself, blockchain, and the inner workings of Mataka. Enjoy. Awesome. Seamus, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Great to be here. Great to have you. So before we jump in and talk about um, Medico and all of that wonderful stuff. Tell me a little bit about you, your background, um, stuff to kind of give my audience a better idea of who you are. Sure. So Seamus Donahue, I'm the, the VP of sales and business development at Metaco. Um, we're a Swiss-based company that basically works with large institutions to enable them to uh, um, securely integrate, store, and manage digital assets. I've been in this space with a company for about two and a half years. Um, we're based in, as I mentioned, Switzerland. Um, but I joined from Singapore and previously I actually ran a Swiss crypto exchange in Asia um, and from all through the excitement of 2017 and 2018. But my background prior to that was really based on traditional finance. I mean, I worked in, in banking originally from Canada. I got into banking in, in Toronto and I worked for most of the major, let's say, bulge bracket firms and wholesale trading. So I started my career at JP Morgan, uh, Deutsche Bank, Barclays, Merrill Lynch, um, and a stint at a, head, at a hedge fund called Bluecrest. But I, I think, uh, you know, I started in the business fairly, I'm a bit of an old timer in the space. I started in, in 1991 and it was really basically at the advent of the development of derivatives market. So banking, was, as much as people think is a very staid sort of corporate space, it was exciting and new, building new products in the space was growing very, very rapidly. And, you know, in the latter part of my career, we went from 
went from when I started being very bespoke sort of new products and later in the career became very much about automation and electronification of markets and helped really drive a lot of that when I was at Barclays at Barclays Bank before the, the whole banking crisis was one of the leaders in the wholesale trading side was really because they electronified wholesale over the counter markets. So that gave me a taste of, of basically what the intersection of finance and, uh, and technology. And I left banking in, in 2011 and eventually started my own startup, very much focused on bringing, let's say, electronification and transparency to wholesale commodity markets. And that got me involved with, it was initial focus really on physical gold and physical precious metals, and then looking at a broader commodity complex because it's extremely opaque and uh, nobody knows really where Where's the price of gold in India versus where's the price of gold in Singapore? Where, where, where the price of gold in, in let's say, the United States? The different prices, even though it's fundamentally the same product. Um, so I ran that for four years. It was a tough. It was focused on banks, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. it was like never really had escape velocity. And instead of doing another round of funding, I shut it down. And just by happenstance, I had an ex-colleague from J.P. Morgan who had gone into the crypto space that asked me, "Why didn't you come, or come to a, a talk tonight?" Uh, this kind of visionary guy in the crypto space is talking and uh, you might find it interesting. There's the CEO of a company called Lique, which was a Swiss crypto exchange. I think it's one of the very early pioneers in the space. And it's about the evening talking about peer-to-peer markets, getting rid of market infrastructure, no need for centralized trust. You know, I actually thought the guy was out of his mind, but uh, a week later I joined and ended up running his Asia business. Um, so that was my 2017 was when I jumped, early 2017 is when I jumped into the space. And you know we were an exchange. It was growing fairly rapidly. Nowhere near what Coinbase was, and I think that was you know obviously you know where Coinbase is now. Licka, you probably might not mm-hmm. know about. But uh, along that journey, I started asking you know how do we manage custody? And one of the one I was told, well, we have two trusted employees in Russia in the Ural Mountains who manage the keys for all the clients' assets. So that was the beginning of a journey looking at custody. And now I'm at Metaco, and I was I joined the company in in. Um, 2018, there were 17 employees, um, very engineering research led, and I was one of their first commercial employees. So since then, I've really been focused on commercializing their product, focused really on delivering secure infrastructure so you don't have trusted employees, distributed trust, and scalable enterprise infrastructure for banks to get involved in this space. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like you have a long tenured background in finance. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a few years. Yeah. So let's. Uh, let's Go ahead. Oh, you're good. How do you pronounce it? Is it Medico or Metaco? Metaco. Uh, well, it depends. I mean, most of the colleagues are French, so you get a bit of a different angle, but, but Metaco works. Okay. Just trying to make sure I got it right. I'm, I'm getting all my pronunciations wrong today. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. But, um, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about Metaco a little bit. Um, I'm curious. So I've definitely dove into it and kind of researched it a little bit, but still have a lot of questions on, you know, how it works and, you know, how you guys started it. Um, can you give me a little bit of detail on that? Sure. So as I said, we, we, the company was set up in Lausanne, so the French side of Switzerland, and it was set up by two people as co-founders, Adrian Tricani, who's a PhD in quantitative finance, and uh, Nicola Doria, who you might have heard of. He's a, what, he's a core Bitcoin developer. Um, so I think they came together in 2015, and their focus was still institutional market, but it was about tokenization. You know, tokenization is still a fairly nascent industry, so you can imagine how that resonated in, in, in 2015. People were like, you know, what is this? What are you talking about? I mean, it really sounded like something from another planet at that time. Um, so I think, you know, not too, not too long after that, they also figured out, well, you can't really tokenize if you can't store the coins or, or store the assets securely. So they actually attacked, and in 2018, they launched a product, which, as you mentioned, is called Silo. 
um, which is really about uh, kind of the foundational infrastructure for banks to be able to securely uh, integrate and then store and manage cryptocurrencies and digital assets as whatever may come in the space. Gotcha. Yeah, I saw Silo on the website um, and I know that's one of your products. So how does that work and who is it meant for? Is it meant for the institutions like a platform? Very much so. I think, you know, if you look back really with the excitement of 2017, 2018, it was really a retail phenomenon and all the solutions in the market, there's lots of, let's say storage solutions or um, ways to manage, manage your assets, but they're all focused on retail and retail. You have a centralized point of risk, which is you, and there's ways you can distribute that. There's obviously more kind of, let's say distributed retail solutions, but those solutions don't really work for institutions. You needed something that one, could be integrated into a, a large institutions, and our client focus is really banks. So enabling a legacy institution to integrate this new asset class into their core infrastructure, number one. So do that securely, and then they need basically they've got fairly complex sort of risk and control frameworks, meaning they have many steps and many different people and segregated duties that need to be supported, and that was basically something that also needed support an infrastructure to support. So effectively, there's no single point of failure. So yeah, we were very much focused on the banks to enable them to get into the space. Um, so that was the, really the, the main pro- approach. So I think before you think, you know, there's a lot of talk, you, know, you look at World Economic Forum, they talk about you know, five to 10 years from now, there's gonna be $24 trillion of assets tokenized, but you can't do any of that unless you have the foundational infrastructure, which is basically the custody element. So really key management, maybe you don't manage the private key related to these assets. Because as you know, um, if you control that effectively, the space is all about bearer assets. If you control the private key, you control the asset. But it's not just about, about stealing the key. It's just access to this key. So fundamental to what we do is really not just custody. And I think it's really Genesis custody. It's really grown into much more of an operating system. for So how you can securely manage everything you do in the digital asset space. And I mean, that's, I mean, we can dive into that, but that's really mm-hmm. the biggest issue now because as the space grows, there's many things you need to connect to. Um, and, and not one company is going to do everything, but you need a way to basically interface to kind of enter the system. And then you also need a kind of core foundation, which is custody. Yeah. And private key security is huge. And I, I've heard from many people that institutions take that part, you know, the most seriously because they're potentially dealing with, you know, hundreds of millions, potentially billions of dollars in crypto or digital assets or things are tokenized in the near future. Um what type of security infrastructure specifically are they looking for that you guys are providing? Well, I think there's, let's say there's a lot of dogma in this space. So we, we started out as a, a comp- we're a software technology company, but typically the way you deploy the solution is really, I think banks have a history of being very comfortable with what they call hardware-based security. So they have things like HSMs, which is, imagine the concept of an onion base. You just have additional layers of security and hardware is mm-hmm. one element of that. Um, so that's just traditionally where that's how we launched our business. And that's really where the, the banks are most comfortable with hardware security. Now, there's also this notion of there's all a lot of let's say, new innovation in the space, because I think, uh, you, as you'll be aware, it's a very fast moving pace, both in terms of what's happening broadly in the market and the technology that supports it. There's solutions in the market called multi-party computing solutions. So effectively, just you can have a all software math, math solution around around storing keys as well. So we started in the hardware space, but we realized that there are use cases for hardware and there's use cases for multi-party computing. And then they're not totally, um, you know, I think the potential need to operate both. So although we started on one side of, let's say this uh, very dogmatic debate, because the hardware guys will say multi-party, all software is not secure enough. And the software guys will say, well, hardware is not agile enough. And, you know, you don't need hardware anymore. It's tough to manage. 
Well, we don't really anymore have that sort of dogma because when we talk to large banks, there's different use cases for, for each. So our solution is really about being interoperable with both of those, but being able to provide basically a, a secure framework for managing wallets, you know, managing position keeping, managing in, interfacing with multiple ledgers, you know, public and permission ledgers with a real focus on public. Um, you know, being, having a framework for things like tokenization and uh, really being able, I think fundamentally being able to fit and to be eventually completely behind a bank's core infrastructure. I mean, ultimately we want to be able to support is it's called the Apple moment for a bank that the, the bank doesn't really have to care about managing the complexity of keys. It's all abstracted behind their own infrastructure and it's seamless and secure and highly scalable. Is it just the banks that are your main customers? Or are you seeing interest from other institutional players that want the same level of security infrastructure? No, it's not. I mean, I would say our focus has been the banks. We decided this is the market we wanted to start on. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, good or bad, I'm not sure. It's, it's the toughest nut to crack, basically, because onboarding to a bank is not uh, just signing up on a website. You're, you're talking about an exercise that can last beyond a year in terms of getting you know, getting through all the compliance and onboarding requirements. But we decided to start on that side of the business, um, decided that these are the very big players that need basic solutions. So they need something scalable. And I think um, it's proved to be fairly the right strategy. I think we were unique in focusing that space. Um, we've had very good traction. I think some of our clients are public firms like Standard Chart, started, excuse me, Standard Charter Bank. Um, Northern Trust is now using our infrastructure. Um, we work with a number of core infrastructure providers as well, so core banking software providers that support uh, banks. So Avaloc is a, a system very, not used in the US, but very popular in Western Europe, Switzerland, Southeast Asia, but 150 banks on that platform. So they mm-hmm. have a turnkey solution, which is our, which is based our silo solution. So they don't need to know anything about this, this but about managing cryptocurrencies, and it's all abstracted by the core banking. Um, so yeah, we've, we, we've targeted the large banks. But large banks, the way we work with them is we license their technology. It's deployed on their on their premises and they manage it. So that is not for everybody because not everybody, there's a general trend towards cloud. There's a general trend towards SaaS, um, outsourcing technology in general. And, uh, you know, we've responded to that. So all our clients up to now have been these kind of large institutions that manage their own stack. And now in, in Q2 of this year, we'll be launching a, a, a managed service. So software as a service. So you can get our silo product the same, the same product that tier one, tier two banks, exchanges, and infrastructure providers have been using since 2018. Um, you can uh, much we can go all the way down the value chain in terms of the size of the firm and effectively accessible to any institution. So I, I think it's not so much did, who do we want to serve before our product was really designed for large institutions. Now we've adapted it so we can serve the whole market. So would you say that this is pretty indicative of financial institutions wanting to buy into this industry? Or is this more of like a, a big learning step for them? I think 20, you know, I think 20 uh, post the, let's say crypto winter. So 2018, 2019 was the learning stage. Banks were experimenting. They had innovation departments that really had experiments with no particular purpose in the end other than experiment themselves. So it was the, it was the era of the proof of concept. We've gone past that. I think largely because some, there were some key pioneering institutions. I'd say one of our partners, for example, Avaloc, um, the founder of that company basically in 20, 2018 decided this was something going to be strategic and decided to integrate it into their core banking software long, long before there was probably client demand, long before it was probably commercially viable. Um, you know, same sort of stage that, you know, Fidelity got in the space. So there's some sort of early pioneers. They started to get traction. I think that, you know, the way banking works or large financial institutions work is, you know, there, there's obviously the pioneering stage. 
And then there's the fast followers. And we're past the fast followers. Now we're, we have a lot of people trying to catch up because there's actually a lot of commercial traction in the space. So what's driving the business now is pioneers took a risk, fast followers followed them because you don't want your competitors to get too far ahead. Now the thing you have many different types of investors, whether asset managers, fund managers, um, you know, high net worth individuals, corporations, you know, think of MicroStrategy in the US, all talking to their financial institutions, their banks, asking them, are they going to service them in this new asset class? So that ultimately is how you get broad, broad sort of interest and adoption by the institutional market, because if they don't do it, they're going to lose business. And I think, you know, look at basically, you know, we're based in Europe. Our primary focus has been, let's say, Europe and Southeast Asia. Look at the banks in Europe. They're the market cap of the banks. I mean, you're talking about some of the banks, many of the banks have their, their cap, market cap is not too far off the crisis lows from, from 2008. Meanwhile, you're going to see Coinbase potential issue in the U.S. or IPO rather somewhere between 50 and 70 billion. All the assets they manage have come from the banks. This is a huge opportunity that they're waking up that this is really have a material impact both on the bottom line and market cap. So I'd say there's there's a wall of institutions getting into the space now. Is so is Mitako a U.S. company, Euro company? Like where is it domiciled? We're domiciled in Switzerland. Um, and I would say basically our, our, our clients, we have a global client footprint. And mm-hmm. the, way, the way we've built the client business is not so much that uh, you know, we go to markets and try to, try to push the product. Because we're dealing with regulated institutions, the, 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 pre, the prerequisite for a market to open for us is that the regulator there has to be supportive of their regulated banks to get involved. Mm-hmm. So that means they really need to define the space, to define a taxonomy of these different asset classes, how they're treated. Um, so the banks... Don't, don't feel it's a gray area. They need to have pretty much regulatory certainty to get involved. So Switzerland was one of the leaders in that space. Um, the, the regulator here, which is called FINMA, basically was really saw this as an opportunity for innovation in the economy um, and a way to reinvigorate the banking banking system. So they, they've very much been a leader. It's a place like Singapore, MAS, mm-hmm. similarly followed quick after. And in Europe, we've seen Germany. Baffin is the regulator there. They've been kind of the leader in the European markets. And now the, you know, broader, broader Europe, Europe is looking to harmonize those rules across Europe. So for us, there's been, there's been a, uh, it's really about regulation. So when, when people say they don't want regulation in the space, well, we deal with institutions that won't move if they don't have regulation. And in the end, the on-ramps and off-ramps to finance are at the moment largely through regulated institutions. So when those, when the regulators support the space, we get clients in those markets. So we are very strong in places like Switzerland, Germany, Singapore, and we're starting to get good traction in the U.S. because you're starting to get regulatory regulatory clarity in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I was going to say in the U.S. Mm-hmm. the we got the OCC that kind of opened the doors in the last year to let banks, you know, kind of start exploring this and developing products and services. And I think Biden just froze the the uh, proposed rules from FinCEN or whatever on regulations as well. So Correct. it's uh, opening up very quickly in the U.S. Is it similar in Europe or is it like by country? Um, so I'm not quite sure how the banking system works there compared to the U.S. when it comes to crypto. So is it different in Germany versus um, Switzerland, or is it like the EU got its own thing for it? Yeah, well, well definitely Switzerland's outside of outside of Europe, so it is different here. But uh, you know, I think there's been some um, you know front runners, let's say, in Europe. But Europe does work on kind of passporting regulatory regime, meaning if you're able to operate in one country, you can typically take that sort of regulatory approval and operate in other countries within the EU. So in the space, Germany, uh, sorry, within Europe, Germany has really been a leader in this space. 
And mm-hmm. uh, the EU is now looking to basically effectively harmonize those rules across every other member country in Europe. So there's been a leader, but I think the idea is really to have consistent rules across across the um, across the region. So you can, companies can, for example, set up in Liechtenstein, which is also very progressive sort of legislation similar to Switzerland, um, if not more, even more advanced. Uh, they can set up in Switzerland and then service clients in the different regions. It's not actually at that stage just yet. Now we have kind of siloed country regulation, but there's an intense effort now to harmonize those rules across Europe. Gotcha. Well, yeah, it seems interesting. It's going to be fun to watch some of this stuff play out and develop, especially with the banking system over this year and next few years. Um, pivoting away from Itaco for a minute, just to ask more of a fun question. So I was stalking you trying to do research, <laughs> um, trying to learn a bit more about you. Um, I, I think I found your Twitter and it said uh, in your bio, golden Bitcoin or money and everything else is credit, which I generally agree with. So my question was, because I mean, you mentioned gold earlier, so you have a bit of a background there as well. Do you think gold is going to hold on to that label, you know, being um, labeled as money the same way Bitcoin is starting to take over that label, you know, as younger generations shift into Bitcoin in a more digital age? Do you think, I guess my question is, do you think gold is going to slowly become more irrelevant or do you think it's going to stick around? Well, as bullish as I am, Bitcoin uh, it's still got a relatively young track record, whereas gold's been recognized as a store of value for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's going to go from um, from 100 to zero suddenly that nobody will recognize it. And I, I think there's definitely a generational interest, a generational say preference rather in places like North America. But generally, North Americans are not big investors in the gold markets. Where you, where you can go to places like Asia, and by in places like India, China, and most most of most of Asia, it's effectively a second currency, and it's really viewed as a as a check on their own central bank's currency because a lot of these regimes have gone through a lot of currency devaluation and the only way to protect your assets has been a hard asset like like gold so you there's you can go if you've traveled through asia you you'll always find basically there's gold markets you can walk in and there's a there's a traded two-way price in a lot of these places and people may buy jewelry to to wear to wear gold Mm -hmm. but but to invest in gold rather but Jewelry in Asia is 24 carats, so it's pure gold. So it's very negotiable. So it's a very different approach to gold than, than the West, where there's really not much allocation, um, even at the institutional level. So I think gold is not going to go away anytime soon. It's you know it's a 10 to 12 trillion dollar market, so it's got a very big market cap. But I think there's no question that when you look at gold, sorry, look at gold. There's certain properties. The one that's a it's as, as Greenspan, who you know former Fed chairman, said before he became governor. Gold is one of the few ways you can basically protect yourself against the system. You can exit the system. And we saw Christian Lagarde, you know, the head of the ECB, just say that mm-hmm. same thing about two weeks ago, that things like Bitcoin is a potential exit of the system. So there, there's definitely a lot of a lot of comparables that are, or let's say, um, properties that are very positive, very strong on both of them. But I think the advantage of you know, gold is still a physical asset and the storage of it is very centralized. So there's some weaknesses. And I think you know the fact that you know, there's a clearly... It's not a scarce asset. It's just scarce at a particular price. But as the price rises, there's more of it basically because more becomes economically viable to mine. Bitcoin has properties of absolute scarcity, and you know it's gold. It's gold 2.0 that you can teleport across the world instantly, right? It's uh, you know it's native internet money. So this is something that I think is underappreciated by particularly the older generation. Let's say my generation and older. Um, but I think I was kind of predisposed to, to the space from because I did, I think, in the um, 
in the early early to early part of uh, you know to the two thousands, let's say, um, I started getting very interested in the gold market. And when other central banks were divesting, I started buying. I've been a long term investor in the space, but I see now that there's potentially a better opportunity. So I think you're supposed to use both. I mean, we we're going through extreme experimental monetary policy in every country on earth, and we don't know how that ends. But we do know that there's a lot more of the fiat money. You could look look at M two in the U S. How it skyrocketed. Um, you need a hedge. You need a way to opt out of this system because it could go horribly wrong in some ways. Well, yeah, it definitely could go horribly, horribly wrong at any point in time. Do you yeah. think gold is underappreciated by the younger generations coming into these markets? Well, I mean, under, yeah, I mean, I think they appreciate the properties, but they see better properties in Bitcoin. So um, I, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily say you're supposed to, that you have to hold gold if, if your preference is Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is a fantastic investment. And I think it's one of the best investments of our lifetime. And I think the, the risks to it are, are incredibly asymmetric. And you'll probably, there's space for just because it, it could converge to the value of gold. I don't think necessarily gold goes to zero. So, and I think that's just the first step for, um, the, the first step for the valuation of Bitcoin. So it's, I don't think it's an either or, but I think if you have to choose one in this, particularly in the West, you, you would choose Bitcoin. One more fun question, and then we'll start wrapping it up. Cause I feel like it's criminal not to mention this at, at given what's going on in the markets. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on wall street bets? Um, you know, this whole retail versus hedge fund battle that's going on in the stock market. Um, like it shows how broken and corrupted, you know, traditional finances, the stock market is in a lot of ways. Do you think it, in the end, it bodes well and helps promote potential crypto solutions and companies that can, you know, solve a lot of these solutions or problems? I mean, I, th- I agree. There's no doubt this, it's a demonstration that things are broken. I mean, it's probably a demonstration of many things. People are, you know, frustrated, stay locked at home. You got you have nothing to do. So the, the, you get a stimulus check, you might as well Put it in the in the casino that has better odds than than uh, than a regular casino. So be in the market. But I mean, I think there's been structurally a lot of problems in the market for a long time. When you have hedge funds buying all the flows from from um, some of the the brokers in the U.S. and uh, you know the, why do they buy it? Because they can front run those flows. So there's there's it's not exactly been a fair market. And I think there's no doubt that you look at the crypto space. It's, it's about leveling that field so no one has a particular advantage. Now, of course, like any asset, there's going to be incentives for, for people to game the system as much as they can. But I think the structural disadvantages should go away to a large degree. Um, you know, we don't need these, these let's call them uh, you know, toll keepers that basically collect tolls just for being, being there as trusted institutions. And we can see not all of them really have earned that trust. So it's just effectively a tax on our system. So I, I don't, I, you know, I... I find it ironic that everyone's complaining that these, you know, all these, um, you know, Reddit, Reddit sort of um, Reddit groups are now, you know, pushing around the hedge funds and the hedge funds are complaining they're losing. I mean, it's, it's turning the tables, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I do agree. This is a, is a sign that uh, this, the system as we know it, or basically the, uh, you know, the market speculation is probably also reaching an excessive point. Um, and we do need a system that's much fairer than we have right now. Yeah, it's been quite an interesting week or so watching all that happen. And it feels almost like a, a statement from the, the little guy in, in the world that's invested. Anyways, what's the roadmap look like for Matako, you know, going into 2021? Are you guys just going to keep developing out silo or do you have plans for other projects or like what, what's the general plan? 
I mean, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think we, we've focused on a particular space for the large financial institutions. And we realize now that, you know, just as we described the markets a little bit broken, the existing system is, look at the existing technology stack banks have. It's, it's pretty much a spaghetti system that's been built over you know, 20 to 40 years. There's an opportunity to reinvent the kind of financial stack um, that institutions need. And core to that is really the kind of end-to-end -end security around that. How do you interact with what's a secure orchestration layer across the entire financial system, a new financial system, which is you know, digital assets, crypto assets. And that's what we're really can deliver. So it's really about having the most flexible solution. We don't know, you know, as a, as a practitioner in the space, it's very hard to know, you know, which, which are the right ways to go. So you need something highly, highly flexible because there's new technologies that are coming out, you know, every day when you watch this space. Um, mm -hmm. So we really want to be the foundation for how a firm builds their digital stack and uh, really keep them um, future-proof from that because of its uh, kind of flexibility and scalability. So that's all our solutions are focused on that going forward. Well, Seamus, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast and, you know, help elaborate on what Mataco is, what you guys are doing in terms of, you know, the financial side of things in this industry. Um, I know that's very important and educational for a lot of people. It's such an important area. It's growing so rapidly. So yeah, thank you for taking the time. Come on and talk about all that and really appreciate it. Great to be here, Brandon. Thanks a lot.